You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Just a couple of reminders before we get started with this week's show. If you guys have written us recently, either just through email or through the hazardground.com website, please check your spam folder. We've been responding to emails for the last week or so, and so we just want to make sure that you guys are receiving them and that our correspondence isn't going unnoticed. We certainly appreciate all the feedback, any questions and comments that you guys have. So keep them coming, and we'll do everything we can to get back to you guys in a very timely manner. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We want to get those to 1,000. We're almost there as we continue to grow this show, grow this program. You guys are such a big part of it. But the more we can get reviews, doesn't have to be a lengthy one, doesn't necessarily have to be positive, although we'd love five stars from everybody. But as long as we continue to get those reviews, the show is going to continue to grow and we'll be pushed to the top of the line as far as new podcasts that are out there. So please keep the ratings and reviews coming. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard at Hazard Podcast. And finally, don't forget about our Amazon promotion. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we donate it right back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Once again, we certainly thank you guys for being a big part of this show. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground Podcast is a former Navy lieutenant who was also an EOD technician. He had two deployments, one to Iraq, one to Afghanistan. He lost his eyesight in an explosion in Afghanistan in 2011. He went on to be a multiple-time medalist and gold medalist in the Paralympic Games. There is a book and a movie in production about his story. He is Bradley Snyder joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Brad, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. No, thank you, sir. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Uh, I'd like to bag on you for going to the Naval Academy, but I won't. Uh, as an Army guy, we'll leave those kind of discussions for later on in the show. <laughs> but let's yeah. uh, let's start at the top because, you know, it's interesting. We were talking before we started. You and I have some mutual connections through my time in Baltimore where you ended up training and going to Loyola. So I'm excited to hear about all this. But start back at the beginning and tell us how and why you got in the Navy. Well, uh, I'm of that generation where, uh, you know, I was in high school when the towers came down mm-hmm. and I am, uh, the descendant of, uh, the greatest generation, my grandfather, both of my grandfathers served in the Navy around the time of world war two. My, my, my maternal grandfather actually served in the battle of Midway and others. He was a torpedo man in the Navy dropping torpedoes out of aircraft at Japanese submarines and ships and things like that. Um, and so I grew up sort of hearing those stories and looking up, but photos of my grandparents up on the wall wearing their naval uniforms. And I think it just sort of crept into my DNA that that was sort of where I was headed. And then to, to see something like the, to, to, or to live something like nine 11 really codified that in my mind of knowing what I wanted to do was to, you know, be a part of the service that's going to make sure that that never happens again. And so that, that marked, you know, the entirety of my service. I mean, I, I went to the Naval Academy and spent four years there, but when we showed up at the Naval Academy in 2000 and, you know, I got there in 2002. Yeah. I got there in 2002. Um, there was a machine gun at the front gate. There were sandbags around the whole front. You know, if you've ever been to Annapolis, it's, you walk right off of the bars of downtown and all of a sudden there's a big wall and it's the Naval Academy. 
um, at, at the front gate, seeing a Marine with a machine gun was a, a, a shocking thing for an 18 year old. And sure, I knew, yeah. you know, it, it, we're not just going to school here. We're getting ready for war. And so, uh, spent four years there sort of itching to get out into the fleet as quickly as possible. Um, and you know, and, and, and then I spent most of my time in Iraq and Afghanistan. You, you joke about, uh, making fun of me for naval service. While I wore a naval uniform, I ended up working for the army for <laughs> all seven years. Yeah, it, it, joint service is where we were at the uh, the entire time. Why the Naval Academy, though, as opposed to an enlistment? Or, I mean, did you know, was this in the works prior to 9-11? Is that what you always wanted to do? Yeah, it was a sort of confluence of things. I, I you know, I, I sort of knew that I wanted to go into the military. All right, for, well, let's say, uh, first I knew I wanted to go to college, and the uh, opportunities or availability out there for me was, um, I qualified for state scholarships to go to University of Florida if I wanted to. I'm from Florida, St. Pete. And or I I could go either enlist or go to the Naval Academy. And so I had I was pursuing those three options in parallel. Um, I'm really glad I didn't enlist because the recruiter had me sold on going to a submarine. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't do that. Um, but the Naval Academy was an opportunity to get an education, uh, to go to this remarkable place. I mean, anybody who's walked the grounds of of Annapolis is there's no way you can't just be impressed with the chapel and John Paul Jones's crypt and Rick Overhaul and Nimitz Hall and Halsey Hall and all these different incredible buildings named after incredible servicemen. Um, it's, it was just a perfect place. And then, oh, by the way, it was one of very few uh, Division One programs that were recruiting me to swim. So it was an opportunity to go to school, serve my country and be a Division One collegiate athlete. And I thought, wow, it'd be perfect. So that was my number one option. I was kind of ahead of the curve uh, as far as how quickly I applied. I got in by Christmas of my senior year of high school, and it was sort of a done deal. Okay. Uh, to that end, uh, obviously swimming a big part of your life and the water a big part of your life. When you put that together with the Navy, the first thought that comes to people's mind probably is Navy SEALs. Was that ever a thought for you? Yeah, I think it was for a while. I, you know, I, I they're pretty quick when you get there to the academy, you know, it's the plebe summer thing where they shave your head and start yelling you. Pretty quickly, they start asking you, well, what are you going to serve a select? What are you going to be when you leave the Naval Academy? And I thought, well, I don't know. I, I figured the military would tell me what they wanted me to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was kind of, you know, I, a lot of my friends came into the Naval Academy and were like, I've, I've wanted to be a jet pilot since I was three. And I wasn't. I wasn't like that. I love the movie Top Gun, but I had no interest in flying an airplane. Um, maybe being on a surface ship would be a cool deal. But pretty early on, I saw a kind of a subculture at the Naval Academy, these fellows with uh, cauliflower ear and thick necks, and they were all wearing scuba bubbles, this little pin that said they had gone to scuba school. And that was the group of people who were all getting ready to go to SEAL training. And so I fell in with that group. I felt like I liked that group a lot. I spent three years at the Naval Academy thinking I wanted to be a SEAL. Um, and I did all the requisite dumb stuff that you have to do, running around with the logs and the rafts and, and the push-ups and all that. And I think I, I had an epiphany my junior year and just said, I, a lot of the reason that I wanted to be a SEAL during that time of my life was just because I wanted to know if I was tough enough to do the hard thing. Um, and I had to ask myself a hard question like, well, is that is that a good reason to pick your career? And I started looking at what is the career pipeline of a SEAL? And what's a career pipeline of an EOD officer? I first discovered EOD officers when I went to scuba school after my freshman year. And they told us it was the best kept secret in the Navy. You get to basically do all this really cool stuff. It's a very small community. We're very involved. It's a really neat mission set, but nobody even knows who we are. And I, th I found that pretty intriguing. And 
I, I ended up liking the mission set a little bit more. Felt like I was better suited for just kind of this diverse mission set floating around different groups. Um, the EOD community works with basically all the battle space owners. We work with the infantry. We work with SF. We work with Navy Special Warfare. We work with everybody. And being able to float around and bring our really valuable skill set to the whole battle space was something that really attracted me and I felt like I would be good at. So I, I kind of made the shift my junior year of college away from wanting to be a SEAL and then wanting to be an EOD tech instead. Yeah, I mean, the EOD community, and again, I was branched an ordinance officer, and uh, I was one of the two people who was in line during my officer basic course uh, to go to EOD school, and I lost out to a, uh, a guy who was much better than I was. He was a prior service E6. He just, you know, he, he was better on yeah. test scores, better on everything. You know, I was a regular second lieutenant. He had about six years of Army experience. But again, it's one of those things where, it went to the right guy. So, but my point yeah. is, is that the EOD community, it really is special. It, it is a place that prior to the war on terror starting, nobody really knew about. Like it was, you know, you had to really search it out and find it. Now, right. obviously, anybody who's deployed downrange knows how important, how critical EOD was. And obviously, the nature of their work was something that I don't even know if EOD experts would have figured that they would have had to do uh, for the better part of 20 years through the war on terror. No. So, uh, it's a, it certainly is a very unique and, and interesting field. Um, so when you graduate from the Naval Academy, uh, you, you're experienced encapsulated in Annapolis was what? I mean, happy with it? I mean, obviously you were moving out, but you know, what, did it live up to the expectations you thought? Oh, absolutely. But what's funny is you ask me that question now when I'm 35 and I've been through all this stuff. Um, if you had asked me when I left the Academy... I was just in just this big hurry to go to the fleet. I felt like while the academy experience was great, I struggled in school. You know, I, my priorities were elsewhere. I was focused on swimming. I was focused on military stuff. I couldn't wait to deploy. I was reading all this military history and stuff, and that didn't really parallel with my engineering degree. So I, I didn't do that well in school. So it was always stressful, and I was pretty happy to leave that behind and go do what I wanted to do in the beginning where I – I wanted to go to the academy to become a, a naval officer, and finally, I was so excited to to wear my little butter bar and, and head out to the fleet. So, I think at that point, I was just really forward minded. I couldn't wait to start training, start deploying, and all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't until much later that I recognized that the the academy is a really special place, and a lot of people like to knock it for whatever reason. And but it we really accomplish a remarkable thing there, taking you know. Uh, you know, ruddy cheeked, bushy eyed, for, uh, whatever kids, just 18 year old kids, you and you shape them into a, 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 a naval officer who's capable of doing really remarkable things in the fleet. And you do that in four years and you do it really quickly. And I, I now I work there and I see this transition every year where the kids who show up, they're just afraid of they're afraid of getting yelled at and they're afraid of the the upperclassmen and they're afraid to say goodbye to their parents. And I see this transition where just day after day, month after month, they end up being these remarkable people by the time that they graduate. And it's such a neat thing. And I, I, I'm, I've, com I've committed my life to try to figure out how to understand that transition and how the Naval Academy does it so well. And you graduated from the Naval Academy when? 2006. Oh, so you never saw Navy lose to Army. 
No, well, yeah, that's a that's a something I've had to work through as an adult. <laughs> yeah, I think 2002. Yeah, 2002 to tw- to 2015, it ran off a yep. streak of what I think it was a 12 or 13 in a row, uh, and finally in, in 2016, Army and Jeff Munkin uh, took took it back. So, uh, just yep. you know, it, it, the the rivalry is strong to say the least. All right, um, so you graduate in 2006. Now, Afghanistan's kicked off, Iraq's kicked off. You're in the fleet. What happens next? Where do you go? What's your assignment? Well, as excited as I was to leave the Naval Academy and go to the quote-unquote fleet, I spent another 13 months in training. In EOD training, yeah. Yeah, EOD school in the Panhandle of Florida, scuba school as well, also in the Panhandle of Florida. And then I, uh, my first duty station was Charleston, South Carolina. We used to have a mobile unit down there. We no longer do in the EOD community. It moved up to Virginia Beach. But I had a cool opportunity to live downtown Charleston while we were doing another eight months of very – Iraq-specific training, sort of that traditional mission set that you're probably familiar with, the uh, IED response on the freeways kind of thing. We get in that big transformer-looking vehicle, drive out to the freeway, and do a robot-style response. Um, We did eight months of training there, and then I deployed to Iraq. Um, I hit an interesting spot in Iraq. uh, I went there in the fall of 2008 into the spring of 2009, and I was in an area called Diwaniya, just south of Baghdad. Yep, no, no, well. Yep, and... At that particular time, you know, the surge had worked and we were starting to kind of scale down our efforts. And while there was still relatively heavy fighting up in the north in Kirkuk and areas like that, Diwaniya was pretty peaceful. Uh, yeah, exactly. Peaceful. So we we thought we, we our, our mission set was that response type mission, but we really weren't getting a lot of calls. So to fill the idle time, we started scheduling a lot of training with the local Iraqi military and police. We kind of made our own work out there, and it was an interesting deployment, definitely not the deployment we thought we were getting ready for. Um, But I think it's a testament to what makes the military community so great is that they're not going to just sit there idle. They always make it better. The the FOB got nicer when there was lesser activity. We did a lot of training with the Iraqis, and that was a really cool experience. And then I came home after six months and kind of like scratched my head thinking, well, I went to Iraq and back, and I didn't fire my weapon once, nor did anyone shoot at me. So that didn't feel like I had gone to combat, I guess. No, it never does. But uh, quickly, combat comes to you sometimes. So that first deployment out of the way, uneventful, as you had mentioned, obviously no casualties, I assume? Yeah, no casualties. Uh, I think the worst we had was a couple headaches. But uh, outside of that, nothing, nothing bad. Did you get a chance to dismantle or be on the team that dismantles the first bomb while you were there? No. And really? that's the, that. Yeah, that's the the really tough thing for an EOD tech. And and actually, I I think uh, during that time period, there was a relatively small amount of people who had actually because, you know, the there was uh, the the work was distributed strangely where there were a lot of people who did a lot of work, but there were also a lot of people who did almost nothing. Um, And I, I felt during that deployment and afterward, I thought, well, we've we've missed it. We've missed the war. It's all over. And I don't you remember this like 2008, 2009. I feel like we had thought like, oh, we're, we're winding down in Iraq. Afghanistan really wasn't much after 2003. No, um, we felt like everything was kind of winding down. And I was like, all right, well, we missed it. Um, and, and to your point, this notion of like I'm an EOD tech, I'm trained to dismantle explosives. And we didn't actually we did a couple real calls on that deployment and thought that we might find something, but it turned out that it was either a mortar tail sticking out of the ground or, you know, uh, we did a couple weapons caches, but no live IEDs. And that's kind of our bread and butter. So 
I left that deployment thinking, well, you know, when am I going to get my street cred, I guess. And, um, uh, then it, everything shifted quite a bit for my second deployment. And it was an interesting, the shift from 2009 to 2011 was a reversal of that, right? Like all of a sudden Afghanistan started to be, uh, more and more of a hot spot, and Iraq started to come undone again, uh, a little bit slower than Afghanistan at that point, but obviously it got worse and worse. Yeah, and uh, you know, I was uh, in Iraq for the closeout of all 2011, and it was yeah, you know, it, it was there was nothing going on. I mean, by that time, you know, the the announcement had been made that we were pulling out, and it was just for us, all of us who went there. You know, I told my unit, "We're going there to leave." And what does that mean? We're going there to leave. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Once we get there, yeah. our only goal is to leave. So uh, it was – Iraq at that time was in a weird spot. You were very static, uh, very defensive, uh, not a lot of kinetic operations going on, sort of just sitting on a fob uh, for a year, getting mortared and, and hoping it doesn't land in the wrong spot, you know, which, uh, again, right. was, uh, you had no control over that. So some of that was, was, was futile in itself. But you get right. to Afghanistan for your second deployment uh, and kind of just describe where did you go and what was, you know, kind of the expectation when you got there? Well, there was a nuanced shift in the mission set and uh, I was more of what we would call assault support. So instead of waiting in a room for someone, an infantry unit or a, a route clearance unit to come across something on the freeway, uh, we were actually going out on assault missions with a special operations force. And so the, the mission set changes. It's more of a stumble upon if we go into a house or a building and there's either a booby trap or a cache or something along those lines. It's now my job to step in and either either mitigate that hazard or advise the ground force commander on how to best protect the force and, and move around it or whatever else. So it's much faster paced. Um, obviously, it, the, the job changes where I, when I have a big bomb proof truck, and a robot and ropes and a bomb suit, I have a lot more tools to use to do my job safely. In the assault environment, I'm not going to strap a robot on my back. I really have, you know, a pair of clippers and a knife, and that's about, you know, the, the extent of what I have to mitigate explosive hazards. So it's a very different job, uh, you know, exciting, but risky, very risky at the same time. Um, so it was, uh, but that said, we got there and uh, our, our more task oriented job was we were working with Afghan commandos, the, you know, to, to train them up, get them up to a point where they can do their own assaults and things like that. And so we were going on missions with them every couple days. And it, and actually, uh, I deployed in uh, March or April of 2011. And uh, it started off just like Iraq, like it, there wasn't a whole lot going on. And uh, there were blips of intelligence here and there, and there was a couple of these blue on or green on blue type of attacks where a commando would uh, occasionally sort of turn on us, and, and that, that happened, and we man managed that. But by and large, there wasn't a lot of – we would go out into these villages. We would go on, go on an assault, and I, I wouldn't find anything. I wouldn't find any weapons, wouldn't find any booby traps or anything, and I thought, man, it happened again. We missed it again. Here we are just kind of biding our time. And then about halfway in that, deploy that deployment uh, in the summer of 2011, we started dialing in on this area called the Panjway Valley. And there was quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of activity. I hesitate to call it, again, heavy fighting because the, the tactic at the time was the Taliban was engaging us from really far away with very small groups of people. Um, and we determined that they were trying to push us into areas that were heavily laden with IEDs. And 
that managing that tactically became a huge challenge. It was really frustrating because, you know, we're, we're taking on massive amounts of risk with not a lot of reward. We're not really, you know, fighting groups of people and, and, and there was no perception of winning. It was basically just trying to avoid getting hurt. So that, that got increasingly frustrating over the next couple months. And then obviously I, I, you know, I, that's where I got hurt. I was on, we were on one of those missions. We were patrolling in an area. Um, we had actually not taken contact at that point, but kind of expected that we would very soon. And we found ourselves in an area that was really heavily laden with IEDs. Uh, the, there were two Afghans in our patrol who stepped on one. I was in the effort to try to, uh, you know, medically evacuate those two casualties where in, in so doing, I stepped on another IED that was about a meter away from the other one. And so it was just one of these, one of those days you hear, I really, I feel bad for my partner, Adam, and then the medic, we had a PJ with us, they were running around with their heads cut off trying to, you know, take care of all these casualties. And, you know, I didn't make it any, I did, I made it better for a little while and then I made it worse by getting hurt myself. So it was a a really crappy day. (laughs) Yeah. You kind of got ahead of it there, but I'm just, all right. So this isn't your first experience with a bomb at this point in time, right? Oh yeah. So on that deployment, that's where, you know, I, I, I was able to actually kind of do my job a number of times then. Right. It, it kind of, the mission started to kind of actually just, just escalate slowly. Like on the, there would be a mission where we found an IED, but we didn't actually take contact. And then there was a mission where we took contact and found a bunch of IEDs. And there was an, there was a mission that was really complicated. There was, it kind of just started started to escalate slowly throughout that year. And from what I understand, it continued to go that way even after I had left uh, and ended up being a pretty uh, straining deployment for, you know, my platoon mm-hmm. um, and, and everyone who we were working with at that point. So, it, you know, the, the tides had turned, I guess. When you take apart that first bomb, do you kind of have that smile on your face that goes, oh, this is what this is like? Uh, not until afterwards. I think, <laughs> you know, what's, uh, what, the, what you don't hear about, or what you probably do, but like as an EOD tech on an assault team, uh, consider also, uh, you know, a, basically a two-year workup cycle and then going out on a mission every three days. I think it was like our 15th or 16th mission when st- stuff started to happen. Um, but every mission I go on, whether it's a training one or not, uh, the ground force is trained just like any, any, anytime you see a wire or anytime you see disturbed earth or anytime you see a, a, a set of di- like a stack of rocks that looks weird, call EOD. I'd rather, uh, I'd rather get called up a hundred times and it all be false calls than miss one that was actually an explosive and lose somebody. So that happens like a lot of times throughout an assault and you get, it's a challenge for an EOD tech to run over and see that, no, this isn't a bomb. Nope, this isn't a bomb. Nope, this isn't a bomb. Nope, this isn't a bomb. That happens hundreds of times before it's real. And I remember the day that uh, I got, we were doing an assault. We were a split assault. So one group was coming up from the south. One group was coming in from the north. I was in the group from the north. I hear it come over the radio. Hey, we need EOD at, you know, building five or whatever, which was way down on the south of this village. And I kind of came over the radio like, hey, I can't get there for a while. And you know, just stay away from it. And in my mind, I was like, it's nothing. Uh, it's another one of these stupid false calls. It's probably a football or something like that. Um, and I remember walking up to the doorway and I saw the mortar tail sticking out of the ground. It was a, it was a football sized mortar where just a little part of the, 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 the bulk, the bulky side of the mortar was sticking out of the ground. And there was a wire running from the nose up into the doorway of a small building. And I was like, like it, 
my the, the the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I got the goosebumps and was like, nope, this one's real. I looked back at the the, the seal who was behind me and he saw my eyes go wide and he just backed up a little bit because he was <laughs> expecting me to be like, no, it's nothing. But when he saw my eyes go wide, he, he just like, slowly backs up. away. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's so, I, you know, I didn't end up actually going hands on or doing anything remarkable. And I just put a counter charge on it and blew it up. But I, you know, that was the first time I had walked up on something and uh, it, uh, you know this, but like the wire that's running to an unknown location is really the scariest thing yeah. in EOD because yeah. you don't know what's on the other side of that wire. Is it a RC device? Is it a cell phone? Is there a person in that building that's just waiting for me to walk up on it? The, the, the uncertainty is really kind of just gnaws at you. So, you know, minimize your time on target. I put, I put a charge down, walked away, blew it up. And it turned out I wasn't able, no, still to this day, I don't know what was on the other side of that wire because the building came down on top of it and it wasn't worth us going through the debris. But, um, you know, in the assault environment, I consider that a, a mitigated hazard because it's sure. no longer an active bomb. So I remember, you know, in my first deployment, you know, we would get these reports and they were all classified at the time, uh, you know, before, you know, we'd always check the roads before we'd go out on them, you know, roads were, were green, yellow, red, or black, and the black ones you weren't supposed to go on mm-hmm. all, but we would always get these reports with pictures of IEDs, everything from soda cans to dead animals to yeah. dolls in the street, and it's just like, you know, you'd get these pictures of IEDs before they were exploded that they found them, and you're sitting here thinking, dude, I drove past a thousand soda cans on the side of the road, you know, like, how yeah. am I ever supposed to know without stopping and standing on top of it what the hell it is, you know, I mean, how many times did you see a dead animal on the side of the road? How many times did you see a bunch yeah. of rocks on the side of the road? The, the idea that, that you know, I'm supposed to stop my vehicle, you know, and, and where I'm going from point A to point B to get out and check this thing, it, it's... It, one, it's necessary because you're, you're probably saving the life of somebody else. But two, it's almost maniacal. It's, it's like, you know, I mean, yeah. you're going to put yourself at that risk. Um, and, and that's outside of your mission set to go do something that doesn't involve you accomplishing your mission. So it, it, it's a weird sort of situation that you guys get in. But I, I mean, I, again, I can recall multiple times, you know, we'd pull up on something and we would stop and then we'd call EOD and then we'd sit there for like hours because there yeah. were so few EOD techs available and there were so many calls going out to them. Yeah. They were so overloaded. And this was, again, it was before you even, you know, had, had, had uh, commissioned, but in 05 to 06. But, you know, the point just simply being that uh, the, the nature of that job is, is and, and the op tempo of it was something that was unlike any other job in, in the war on terror. No. Yeah. I remember giving my, you know, before every one of our missions in Afghanistan, you'd give a little brief, like a mission brief. And there was always an EOD slide or two that had all the pictures that you just referred to. Here's what we're looking for. And I remember going through all the things and it's like, you know, and also I'm, I'm trying not to just scare the crap out of everybody, but I'm trying to give them the information that they need. And then also giving them the tactical guidance, like, you know, where to stay away from. And I, I gave the first time I looked at my slide, it was like, don't go on pathways because there's IEDs on pathways. Don't go in the great fields because there's IEDs in great fields. Don't go on rooftops because we've seen IEDs on rooftops. Anywhere that a helicopter's landed, there's probably going to be an IED there. I looked through my slide and like at the end of the day, there was no safe area. Like they're, they've been everywhere, you yeah. know? So you, you look at that and I, I can't imagine what that feels like for a non-EOD tech. Like I'm, I'm armed with, I know what to do when I see the wire or the Christmas tree lights or whatever else. For everybody else, it's like, well, there's IEDs everywhere. What am I supposed to do, you know? Prior to your injury, had you guys sustained any casualties from your team? Uh, thankfully, no Americans. We had lost uh, two 
two or three commandos, unfortunately. And that that's, it's tough in its own way. It's, uh, I think it's, it's far, uh, it's, it's sucks to say it's worse when it's an American for us. Cause it's someone, you know, you trained with and all that sort of stuff. But, um, we work with the commandos as well. And, and while we weren't, you know, as tight with them as we were with the Americans, losing one of them was really gripping. Um, and I, I remember sometimes it was frustrating for me to sort of impose tactical restraint on our group. I would say, you know, we don't want to patrol like this. We want to patrol like that because it's, safer from an IED perspective. And some of the, the the special operations folks I worked with were not fans of that because it really constrains their ability to maneuver. Um, and so there was always this kind of locking horns about what's the most efficient tactical way to move about uh, managing the threat of how do we engage ba- uh, bad guy forces at the same time mitigating risk to IEDs. The first time that we lost a commando, it dramatically changed that conversation and people started to understand what I was trying to say. Because it's just it's it's an ugly thing. We we uh, you know the the post blast environment's an ugly thing, and evacuating a casualty is a really sad thing. And especially hearing the news after you get back, because you don't know when you put them on the helicopter. Sometimes you think, well, he's still breathing at that point, um, but you get the news when you get back from the mission that that guy's no longer with you, and it's like, man, that's really that's rotten. And it changes the way you know every time that you do that head count onto the helicopter going out on a mission. You're, you're, you're counting every one of those people and you're kind of thinking like, man, uh, it'll be really rotten if one of these guys doesn't come back. And, you know, it's it's weird when you're st- I remember I would always do the count onto the helicopter with the team lead. And every time I'd pat a guy as he's getting on the helicopter, I'm thinking it's kind of my job. Part of my job is to make sure that these guys come back. And when one doesn't, it's a really, really awful feeling. All right. You started to talk about September 7th, 2011. Let's try to get into it in more granular detail. As you get up that morning, is it a normal day for you guys? Does everything seem normal? Does it feel normal? Yeah, more or less. The mission set had changed just a little bit. We were on this sort of, instead of it being a singular mission, it was a part of a series of missions. That was a little bit different. But overall, we had been doing that style of mission over and over and over again for you know six months at that point. We felt as though we... We we know what we're doing, and um, we have a we have a good working dynamic with us and the commandos, and we 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 know what we're contending with. Um, we had some experience under our belts and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it felt normal. But like I said, every time that you the helicopters land and you're getting ready to go out, you know that it, it completely changes the way your brain works. You sort of click into this different mode. Um, and you recognize that, you know, your life is on the line at every moment. And so is everybody's. And you know this, like, you know, uh, the, the combat environment is a lot of boredom punctuated by these really brief moments of incredible activity and, and craziness and then boredom. So that the real challenge is to stay engaged when things seem like they're fine because you never know when something's going to jump out and all of a sudden become a big problem. And I think that the mission started to unfold exactly like that. You know, we were going into an area that we knew had a lot of IEDs that knew we knew had bad guys. We were actually looking for those bad guys so that we could do what we do to bad guys and all that stuff. Um, And it started off very quiet. Like we landed the helicopters, patrolled in in the morning, ended up in a village that nobody was there. And, uh, you know, in the back of your mind, everything, you know, that everything's going smooth. Everything's fine. We haven't taken contact. We haven't found anything, but the longer that you're in that space, the more suspense starts to build, like something's going to happen. And I remember, 
um, uh, and the patrol, you know, we, we normally patrol in, in half groups. So I, I would lead, we would at this point in the, uh, deployment because of the IEDs, we, uh, an EOD tech was leading every patrol and we were doing kind of like ducks in a row patrol, um, just to make, just to kind of keep everything safe. Very similar to the way you would have seen in like Forrest Gump, you know, they have that, the, the engineer out in front with the metal detector. We were doing that with an EOD tech, myself or my buddy, Adam. And we had come in two, in two different groups into one particular village, and then we, we linked up in this one village and decided we would go in one big, long group to another village. And my, so my buddy Adam was leading this really long patrol. And on the way out of this town, I saw one of those little stacks of rocks. Like, stacks of rocks is this weird, like, it's an indication from locals to say, don't go down this area. So I called it out to the group, and I, it, I was already feeling bad about where we were. And then uh, a few, like, uh, you know, 15 minutes later, a blast shot up at the front of our patrol. And I thought that, you know, I thought the worst, I thought my buddy Adam had stepped on something. So I ran up to the front of the patrol. I was pretty happy to see How much distance that. are we talking from where you are? To, when you say one long line of patrol, how, how long are we talking? Yeah, so we're a patrol, like 30, 40 people. And so we're probably spread over the distance of a football field. You know, we okay. have pretty good space in between each guy. I'm about halfway back, so I'm probably 50 yards back from the front. But the terrain, you know, it's it's it was Afghanistan in a, in a valley with all these great fields. So um, I was on like a path with a great field to my left, and then there's these big tall walls, and that's where while uh, we that's why I didn't feel good about where we were at. There we had to tra- we had to go through this area that uh, to the to the left and to the right, as far as you could see, was this about 10, 11 foot wall. And sometimes we'll scale that, but sometimes we'll say, well, you know, let's just get everything, everybody through quickly. And there was this one bombed out section of the wall, which allowed us to kind of go through. But every EOD tech hates areas like that. So choke point, it's a really easy place to put a booby trap because people moving from one place to another kind of have to go through that area. So my buddy Adam had cleared through that area and had shown the patrol where to go. So Adam cleared through, uh, and then three other SEALs came, came through um, on that spot. And then the first Afghan commando to come across that area, for whatever reason, decided they didn't want to go the way that Adam had cleared and stepped uh, out and around. And the, the, about the moment he stepped off the cleared path, he landed on a 40-pound IED. Um, he was also really close to the guy behind him, so that guy got flung forward about 10 or 15 feet in a 40 pound blast. And then the guy behind him also was really badly injured. So we had two casualties that we were working through. Um, and I, I was able to kind of figure that out after I got up to the front and Adam and I were able to, able to kind of communicate to each other. You work, you kind of clear that the, our tactic at the time was EOD needs to get in and clear space for the medic to do what the medic needs to do. Uh, because Again, that presumption is where there's one bomb, there's likely many, and we don't want the whole ground force running around in a minefield. So the, the, the advice at that point is the ground force stay still and, you know, take up a good security position and um, EOD and the medics will sort of run the scene. So we were kind of doing that. We had a PJ up at the front, thankfully, who started to work with Adam to the, the one casualty and I was working with the other. And it got really difficult because the terrain was really hard. The other commandos who were around the blast site were a little bit shell-shocked and they were, I would yell at them like, come help me. And they like shook their head because they, they just saw their friend get blown up and they were like, I'm not moving my feet. I'm not going anywhere near that blast hole. 
And so I had to, I had to wait for another buddy of mine to come up from the patrol so we could pick up the first guy. And it was, your adrenaline is through the roof. It's hard to move somebody. You're worried about all these IEDs. You're trying to manage all these different safeties. It's just a really stressful situation. We were able to successfully get the first guy back, but we were, it took us a long time and I was getting increasingly anxious about how long we were sitting in one spot because any bad guys in the area know, you know, if they saw a blast plume go up, if there's an American force there, A, they know exactly where we are, and B, they know that we're probably stuck because if we have a casualty, we can't move quickly. And then C, uh, where there's casualties, there's likely going to be a helicopter, and every Taliban guy's fantasy is to shoot down a helicopter. So it's, it's just – so it's just a really bad situation, um, and your you know your adrenaline's already pegged. It starts to get increase moment by moment, and I was uh, thinking we need to get out of here quickly. So I grabbed a litter from the back of the the patrol, and I was running it back up to the front where I knew Adam and the, the medic were with the second casualty, and I I hit this little spot, and I, re- I remember the decision point. I could go around this one way and get to Adam, or I could go around this other way, and I saw. I was like, I'll run across the grass. I'll get there to him quicker on the grass. What are the chances that there's an IED that's been here so long that grass has grown on the top of it? And I thought, there's no, there's no way. And I remember, that, I remember distinctly making that choice. And then I ran across, and then boom, like, uh, you know, about halfway in between me and Adam, I stepped on another IED. It was a forty-pound blast. Just um, for the audience, real quick, when you, a forty-pound blast. When you got to the first one, how big is the hole? Just so they can understand, like you know, what, what a forty-pound blast is. Uh, I'd, I'd say, like you know, a hole is conical, right? So it's mm-hmm. narrow at the bottom and, and it's big sure. at the top. I'd say at the top, it's probably two meters wide. Okay, and and then probably about a meter down as well. So if you were to stand down in that hole, you're it's probably up to your your chest or so. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Sounds about right. Again, you know, two meters, six feet, and a meter, three feet. So for those who yeah. aren't into the old metric conversion and whatnot, but, you know, I just wanted to give people sort of a visual in their head. So when when you think back to that decision, do you feel that you made the wrong one? Is it just, hey, that's combat? I mean, how do you kind of process that decision? You went to the grass as opposed to the other way. It's an interesting question to ask. And um, for a long time, I felt you know, I felt like I had failed. Like it was obviously the wrong choice. And we train, we call that a mind strike situation. And we train that over and over and over again. I think it's kind of a, in my mind, it's sort of a worst case scenario for an EOD tech because, you know, our, our, the, the scenario that is really our kind of bread and butter is, Hey, there's a bomb over there and we need to get it out of, out of the ground safely. And you have all this stuff at your disposal. You can like evacuate the area and you can take your time and, you can just send one guy down there with a little tool to do a one thing, whatever. In, in a mine strike environment, you don't have any of that at your disposal. You're trying to get a safe place, get a medic down to a casualty as quickly as possible because if that guy's lost his leg, his femoral might be bleeding, and you have you know anywhere from three to five minutes before he's basically toast. And so it's just this incredibly stressful situation mm-hmm. and, and a lot of safeties to maintain all at the same time. But we train that a lot. And the biggest thing that you train when you're in a mind strike is push all those feelings down, calm, slow it down and move slow and make good decisions and move that metal detector back and forth in the right uh, space and make sure you're clearing left and clearing right and, and, and not moving too fast. And that's exactly all the things I did wrong. I moved well, way too fast. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because the first when you said it, the first thought that came into my mind 
was what we learned, the very basic premise in clearing rooms. They say Mm -hmm. slow is smooth and smooth Mm -hmm. is fast. If you hadn't been running and had sort of just been walking briskly to sort of better assess the situation, do you think you would have made a different choice? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's so hard to say. So that that's where the other aspect of what you said came in, comes in. It's like, it's really hard to beat yourself up over that because it's a real, like real no shit crisis situation. And I, you know, I, I was, I always cringe at like the end of a basketball game where, you know, Steph Curry goes up to the mic and he's like, oh yeah, we really put up with a lot of adversity out there tonight. And I'll be like, well, that's not really adversity. I mean, <laughs> it's a basketball game. Like this is a real, like there are, really significant consequences to literally every move you make in that environment. And there are people's lives that are on the line, literally like it's just that there's no situation quite like that. And, uh, yeah, I, that situation, that particular situation caused me to, to, I didn't handle it the way I could have. And, you know, that's sucky to admit, but it is, there are no situations like that. And I won't have to face a situation like that in the future. At least I hope I don't have to. Right. Right. So it's, there's no real point in like beating myself up over it, right? But yeah, at the end of the day, I, I screwed it up. And um, so, but I, I don't know I, if you screwed it up because I, look, let me just say this much, okay? I, there is a chance you could have gone the other way and had the same result. Um, yeah, there's for sure. A, there's a chance you could have, if you had veered another two feet left onto the grass, you would have missed it completely. So, th- yeah. I would just say the randomness of combat sometimes, yeah, uh, and and the chaos of combat and and how it goes down. Literally, everybody understands you can all you can control is the information you had at the moment yeah. and the decision that you made. And to that, I asked the question if you felt like you made the wrong decision, not to sort of poke and prod at you, but just to kind of getting some perspective on on how you think and how you feel about it. But I would tell you, I don't think you made the wrong decision. I, I, I think that you did the best with the information that you had, the result you have to live with. But again, I could tell you, you could have went the other way and a whole different set of circumstances could have un- unraveled that you couldn't yeah. have seen, predicted, or anything else. You could have gone that way and it could have caused somebody else to react differently and then created a whole different set of chaos. There is exactly. no way to figure out right yeah. and wrong. I asked the question just because I am curious how everybody deals with the decisions that they made, because ultimately that mental capacity understanding and how you reconcile the decision decides yeah. what sort of mental state you're in. Well, it's a great question. And it's something that was really hard for a while. Sure. Obviously. Uh, and, and it was hard, you know, there's, you know, leaving the battlefield is, is hard in, in a lot of different ways. In one, you know, there's only two EOD techs in an assault force. And I left them in the middle of a really bad day with only one tech. They're all worried about their good friend. Um, you know, there, I, I made their day so much worse and then I wasn't able to come back and help them at all. And that's feels really crappy. And though, by the way, like to your point, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it wasn't a mortar that came in and landed. It wasn't a, a gunshot or anything like that. It was an IED that was in the ground that I was trained to kind of avoid. So there was a certain level of responsibility there that I couldn't shake. Um, but I, I worked through it and to your point, like there's a, it, Every one of us, I'm sure, has our kind of barroom story of how, you know, I was right there, like three inches difference and, I, you know, I would have been dead or whatever else. And there, if you look back at how many close calls we had all had on that deployment, there were a lot. And there were a, a lot of like, whoo, like high fives afterward, like, man, I can't believe we made it through that one. And the, the, the one I got blown up on was just a little bit closer to what could have been traumatic. Now, a way, a, a way to work through reconciling it is that, look, I lived. I, I, I in many respects, shouldn't have. Or if I had been even three month, three inches different in a different direction, 
I would have been in the middle of that crater as opposed to on the outside of it. And that could have, could have killed me. It could have taken off my legs. It could have done, could have done a lot of different things. So, um, I had to, you know, work to absolve myself of the guilt or say, Hey, it's okay. Um, and, uh, and focus on the fact that I was lucky to be alive. Now, a lot of that gets, I'll say this, one other thing, one other aspect of that really, that little pickle that doesn't often get talked about. And I think you're actually one of the first people to ever kind of like dial in on this. But one of the parts that makes that really tricky, especially when I started getting into Paralympics, uh, I started to get a lot of attention and I started, uh, I started doing some speaking and I started going out and, and people would, uh, kind of give me the sort of the hero worship treatment, like what a hero. And you know, you're a, you're a war hero and a combat experience and you did all this and you did all that. And we're so proud of you and thank you for your service and all of that stuff. And I had a hard time with that at the beginning because, you know, everyone was celebrating me for my greatest career failure. Like I messed up, I got hurt. I'd failed to live up to my charter as a part of that platoon. I left them behind. And moreover, the rest of that platoon did their job the way they were supposed to, uh, lived up to their training, didn't make any significant mistakes, and they all came home, and nobody knows who any of those people are. Nobody's thanking them for them their service. Nobody's giving them a parade or giving them medals or giving them anything else. And that really frustrated me for a while. Um, and the way that I put that away, and it's, it's nice to say this in this forum is to say, you know, like I understand now I represent that group. I represent mm-hmm. my platoon. I represent my community. And, uh, I wear that, I wear that on my sleeve and it, it has been really, uh, cathartic for me to kind of embrace that because it changed, it has changed me decisions that I make, um, in, in today's world reflect my community. Like I know that you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say certain things in the media because I reflect my community and I wouldn't do certain things. I wouldn't put myself in irresponsible situations. Cause I know if my name is etched across a really negative headline, it comes back on my community. And that's something that I take very seriously. So, you know, while, while not everyone is throwing my buddy Adam or my buddy Nick or any of those guys a parade or thanking them for their service the way they are for me, you know, my job is to stand out in the, in the light for them and, and make sure that that gets cast back to them in, in every way I can. Does that make sense? Sure. No, absolutely. All right. Let's back up for a moment. So sure. you step on the bomb. Uh, what are you feeling? What is happening? Take me through sort of this, the next critical moments. I had the, uh, you know, the beginning of Saving Private Ryan where Tom Hanks comes up on the beach and mm-hmm. there's that moment where everything slows down and he's sort of just looking at everything in slow motion um, that's a real dynamic. I think people have described uh, something. It's either a cognizant thing, like you're, you're, there's too much in your brain, so your brain actually starts to perceive things in slow motion. That's how it happened for me. Like I actually felt like time stopped. It just, it straight stopped, and everything was quiet. There wasn't anything going on, and I had what what I perceived to be like this infinitely long moment to sort of take an assessment of what what had happened. Um, and I remember like a really slow, very methodical set of thoughts. Whoa. That's what it feels like to get blown up was the first thought. Second thought was I looked down and I could see my legs and I could see my hands and I didn't see any blood or anything. And I thought, interesting. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't affected, but then I was like, well, no, that's not right. I, I was in the blast. You know, it didn't make sense to me that 
nothing, nothing that I didn't see any injuries. Um, I must be dead. I thought I must be dead. I, I, I stepped on the IED and I'm laying here and I must be dead. And so I started to think about, well, you know, it's been a good ride. You know, I've, uh, (laughs) (laughs) like to this point, uh, things have been okay. (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm on the way out now and, you know, I, I, I lived a good life, I think. And, you know, in retrospect, there was some stuff I would have done differently, but overall, I, I think I, I think I did a good job and I lived a life that I'm proud of and I'm, I lived a, a part of this brotherhood. I had dedicated my life to service and I'm sad. I won't get to say goodbye to my family and man, it's going to be rough for my mom to hear that news. But you know what? I think over time she'll be able to be at peace with the life that I lived. And now I'm kind of excited to figure out what happens after you die. You know, we talk about it, read books about it, but no one actually knows because anybody <laughs> who can talk about it's dead. So, <laughs> so I'm waiting for the gates. Where are they? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I laid there kind of thinking like, all right, any moment now, some kind of white light or something. And, I remember actually kind of getting like, wow, like what, what, it takes a long time for whatever's supposed to happen. And then all of a sudden, like, uh, I didn't realize you had to wait when you got to heaven. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, this is weird. Like I'm waiting on earth. Like uh, I, I would have thought that you just jump into some kind of hyperspace or something. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I, I had, a I had, I wear my radio in my left ear. So my, my left ear was fine. And I was laying actually on my left side, uh, my right ear, I never have anything in. So I had ruptured that eardrum was torn to shreds. And, uh, all of a sudden I had that tonight. It's like this really bad ringing in my right ear. And that's the first thing that sort of pierced my reverie or whatever. And I thought, Oh man. And then I remember behind the, 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 the searing pain on my left or excuse me, on my right ear, I could hear my buddy Adam calling to me. And I thought I kind of like whooshed back to life at, at real speed and was like, Oh shoot, I'm not dead. I'm still here. Adam's looking for me. Uh, let me help him out. And all of a sudden I started to get afraid. I, I realized, crap, man, I took, while my, my hands and feet are okay, I took 40 pounds to the face. I, I wonder what's wrong. And I started, uh, I called to Adam and he got to me and I remember asking him, how bad is it? And he grabbed me and he said, uh, well, uh, your face is pretty effed up, but the rest of you looks fine. Do you think you can stand up? And I, at that moment I was like, man, like I, I, the failure started to sit in and I was like, it's like being benched. I was like, ah, oh, I'm benched. Like I got to get up. I got to get out of here. I'm, I'm screwing over Adam and Kyle, the medic. I'm, I got to get up. I got to get out because you know, they're, they're worried about the other guys. I need to get up I'm on this helicopter. I need to get out of their way so that they can go on and, and continue the mission. And, uh, I, I remember thinking like, I need to get up. So I, I got up, they helped me start to walk. I walked a little bit better step by step. We got to where the helicopter was going to come down. I remember this really ironic moment. There was, I was standing there. I had, they had cut all my, like my shirt, my armor off and everything. So I'm standing there with no shirt on and just my combat pants. And I kind of thought there was this moment where I was like, this is probably a pretty funny image. I must look really messed up. It's my face is all torn up. Um, uh, my ball cap got blown off. I had pretty long hair at the time. So I was like, I looked at my buddy Juno or where I thought Juno was, I wasn't seeing at the time. I looked over at Juno. I was like, Hey Juno, take a picture of me. And he was like, what? And I was like, take a picture of me. I was like, I want to see what I look like when I get back. And he was like, okay, man. And uh, he took a picture of me and I got on the helicopter. And I remember thinking like, I wonder how long I'll be out for. Like, I'll rem- I wonder how long this will take to get better from. And then I kind of went to sleep and that was it. And I never went back. 
and that's and that picture that picture's out there somewhere. I have no idea what it looks like, but I just remember think it, I just used that to say I never thought that I was blind. I never thought that I would be blind. I never really it never really had occurred to me what what this new reality is going to be like. You know what I mean? So who was the first person that tells you that hey you're you're going to be blind or we have to take your eyes or whatever? How does that conversation go? Where are you? It's not as acute as you might think because. I was uh, in Walter Reed for a period of about six days. And during that six days, it's this really awful, like extended uh, LSD trip where I'm on all these painkillers, but I, my perception of reality is so messed up. Like I don't, it's really weird to describe. Like I use, when speeches I talk about, like it felt like I was in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory for six days. Like everything's so weird. And there's all these voices coming from all these different places a lot of them are strangers. Some of them are people I know, my mom and my brother and other people. But it's so hard to wrap your head around what's going on. But you are getting inputs from the real world. And you are hearing doctors say a bunch of things. And I remember hearing various things about my eyes. And so it wasn't like a, a, a far off reality when there was this final dis discussion where the doctors were talking about this last surgery that they were going to do to my eyes. And uh, the, the the acute part of it was I asked, what what are the chances I'll get my vision back? And they said, you have less than 1% chance of being able to perceive light and dark with your right eye. We're going to remove your left eye altogether. And I thought, whoa, like, that's not a great outlook. You know, like, if you say there's a 1% chance of rain, do you bring a raincoat? Absolutely not. You know, like, I'm, I'm not planning on this vision coming back. And it turned out that that surgery wasn't a success. That 1% was even very optimistic. I, I came out of that surgery with a half of a right eye that doesn't work and no left eye. Um, and looking back on that, though, I don't know that I would want the shadow vision or just this remnant ability to determine light and dark. I don't know how helpful that would be. I think it's kind of convenient that the lights went out and now I got to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, I don't see anything... There's no more eyes. I have four good senses. Let's figure out how to use those senses. And, and that's how we started to move forward. You know, you just talked about kind of the idea of not wanting partial vision or partial light or partial whatever. Um, yeah. But I mean, how much discussion goes into this decision and, you know, how much more information can the doctors tell you and sort of why did you decide against the idea of, hey, maybe, you know, my sight can come back miraculous things can happen, so to speak. Oh, well. I didn't, I didn't decide it like beforehand. I mean, I, my, my mom could probably tell you more detail. I mean, that my mom was there and she was probably doing the talking to the doctor and making authorizations or no authorizations. I was basically just like, cool, like, tell me what you're going to do. That's fine. And I, I did actually have to sign a couple things, I think. Um, but I don't, I don't remember any kind of I was not able to rationalize anything. Um, they were basically saying the, 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 the nitty gritty of it was my left eye was infected. They had to remove it no matter what. That was just a, you have to get that out. My right eye was a mess, but they had done some sort of sonogram and they thought that they had found my retina in a small piece of tissue at the bottom of my eye. And they were going to try to unfold my retina and reattach it to the back of my eye which by the way, has never really successfully been done. Mm -hmm. um, so 
that 1% was based on, we're going to try this really weird thing that's not really ever worked, but, you know, in theory, it could work. So, and we're going to go, we're going to go to the depth of trying to find any vision for you because that's our medical responsibility. And I was like, cool, good luck. And then afterward, it's like, nope, it didn't work. So now, you know, you said this back in the earlier in the podcast, like, we get pretty good at military as military people to say, you know, here are the facts and here's the reality and here's what I control and here's what I don't control. And the fact was no eyes. I can't see. Uh, and then your reaction to that is, well, there's a bunch of different ways you can react to that. And, and part of it's sad. Wow, that's going to suck. Like, that's not anything I had thought about. To be honest with you, I mean, I'd been in the OD community for seven years. I know friends who have lost legs. I, we actually deployed with a SEAL who had uh, lost his leg on a previous deployment and came back. And I found that incredible. And I thought, well, if I lose a leg, I can still do X, Y, and Z. If I lose two legs, I can still do X, Y, and Z. I had met um, uh, Peachtree, Sergeant Peachtree before, and he shook, his, uh, he shook my hand with his prosthetic hand. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. I had had a I, I was aware of what missing limbs looked like and what those options were. And I, I really think in the back of my mind, I thought, if I ever get blown up, I'll either die or I'll come away with a missing limb. Blindness was not anything I had ever thought about. Sure, yeah. So, so it was tough at first. Um, but then again, remember that a week prior to that moment of that final surgery, I laid on the battlefield in Afghanistan and reconciled my own death. And I was kind of okay with it. I, I was okay with that there would be no more days. But I was given this really amazing opportunity to come back and I'm still alive. And yeah, I can't see what it looks like, but I have pretty active imagination. And um, I knew that there were other blind people. You know, I knew about Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder, and I <laughs> knew a blind guy had been to the top of Everest. And I thought, if a blind guy can go to the top of Everest, well, then I can surely do all the things that I want to do. Sure, it's not going to look the way that I had thought when I was younger, but um, I, 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 I was just, I felt... I felt optimistic about the future and it's really the feeling you have after a near death experience. Like I'm so grateful to be alive. And isn't this gravy? And honestly, after all the stresses of Afghanistan, there was a sense of relief. Like there will never be a reality more harsh or more difficult than the reality I faced on deployment in Afghanistan. Um, and that, there's a sense of relief there. Like if I can tackle that, I can tackle just about anything. And a lot of people look at the story as, wow, it's so cool that you reconciled blindness. In my view, this is going to sound maybe really overly arrogant or whatever, but it's like I didn't overcome blindness. Like I overcame death. I came back from death. And that's a really empowering feeling, I think. To that end, uh, you know, you talked about the view of the top of Mount Everest and everything else. Um, the bottom of a pool is something you've seen before, and it kind of looks pretty similar in every pool that you've been in. Yeah, so it's always you, <laughs> a long black line. <laughs> so you've already seen that in transitioning. Uh, after you, and, and by all accounts, the recovery is pretty quick, right? I mean, like they take your eyes and everything else works. And so it's like, okay, now it's just figuring out how to operate as, as a blind person. But uh, you decide to get back in the pool, how and why, and, and eventually we end up in the Olympics. So tell me about that. Yeah, I think in that early phase, so on the, on the subject of like, so I felt this really... Uh, really empowered feeling to some extent. Yes, I was uh, dismayed to not be able to see. And there were a lot of tactical challenges as far as finding what color shirt I had on and finding the food on my plate and that sort of stuff. But overwhelmingly, like from a spiritual perspective, I felt 
almost empowered. Like I am going to figure out this new world. And I had a kind of a, a bright light and a fire inside or whatever. Uh, but that was not the same for everybody. And I felt like I was making everybody sad. Like everyone would hug me and cry and they would hug me and they would cry and they would say, Oh, this is just awful. And I can't believe this. And I, I don't know how you're going to do this. I don't know how you're going to do that. And I think there was a lot of pity out there in, in society and I didn't like that. And I wanted a way to show people like how I felt inside. Like I'm this, I'm going to be fine. Don't worry about me. And, and also in my previous life, you know, I was this, sort of cocky special operator, right? I can do all kinds of things. I can jump out of aircraft. I can scuba dive. I can take bombs apart. I can do all this stuff. No one ever questioned my capability before. And now everybody can't even imagine what my life's going to be like. I don't want to be pitied. I don't want you to doubt me. I don't want you to, you know, uh, reduce your expectation of me. I want to show you that I can be just the same as I was before. And I sort of had that chip on my shoulder. And I really desperately wanted a vehicle for that. And I was very grateful. Uh, sports sort of fell in my lap. Mm-hmm. By 2011, or excuse me, by, by 2012, you know, we had a lot of support for wounded vets. And one of the things we had, uh, I don't know if you recall this, but Warrior Games was this big thing back then. It yeah. was a joint thing between the VA and the Olympic Committee, Olympic and Paralympic Committee, where we would bring service members out to Colorado Springs and, and introduce them to adaptive sports. Um, along with that, there were some random budgets. The Association of Blind Athletes actually had a, 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 an ex-Army colonel, a guy named Rich Cardillo, who was his whole job was to just find blinded veterans and give them resources. And he was calling me left and right. Do you have any interest in shot put? Do you have any interest in biathlon? Do you have any interest in this? Do you have any interest in that? And at the, at the beginning, I was like, no, I don't know why you keep asking me these weird questions. I'm not going to throw shot put. Um, but after a while, I was like, you know what? I like his attitude. I like this, you know, maybe this is a good opportunity. And uh, I started to get into that spot, uh, that space, and people started to get real excited about my capability. Um, someone was, you know, brash enough to say, do you realize how lucky you are to be injured in a Paralympic year? Because the London Paralympics were coming up. And like, uh, I was I was kind of, uh, you know, situated in a place where it was feasible, if not probable that I could make the team. And the excitement started to build and I kind of saw this really rare opportunity to accomplish what I had set out. Like, I don't want people to pity me. I want to reframe this whole perspective. And instead of being looked, looked upon with pity, um, maybe I can turn this into something else. And the Paralympics were exactly that. So with that, do you immediately feel like, you know, you have a renewed sense of purpose and, you know, you can refocus all this energy that you had and sort of, you know, get value back to what was lost by losing your eyesight in Afghanistan? Uh, I would say not immediately. It all actually really happened so fast that it was like joint. It was like getting on a roller coaster. I think like, you know, that this is going to be a cool thing, but you don't really know exactly what it's going to feel like until the, you get up to the top of that hill and the roller coaster drops sort of thing. Like it, the excitement just kept building throughout that year And I really kind of thought, you know, this is going to be a nice thing to take advantage of. Yeah, it's a Paralympic year. Let me just do this six months of focus on going to London and and doing whatever I can. And then I really got to get back to uh, figuring out what kind of job I can do. And can I do Microsoft Excel and PowerPoint? And can I function in a workplace? I was actually an intern at a software company in Baltimore while I was training that summer. I worked at a company called Red Owl Analytics. Uh, 
started by a West Pointer, actually, Guy Filippelli, who kind of offered me a really cool opportunity. He knew the vet struggle, right? He knew what it would be like for a veteran to get out of the service. And, you know, I was really good at what I did in the military, but that it's not always as apparent how that translates uh, to the private sector. So he started a thing called the Commit Foundation. You may have run across them. And they reached out to me and offered me this internship. So I was really focused on how am I going to make my millions in the business or in the private sector? And I thought as soon as Paralympics is over, I'm going to go back into, uh, you know, maybe I'll get my MBA or maybe something. I didn't recognize it for what it was going to be. And I think it was all the way until I was even in London where, again, my eyes went wide and just like, wow, this is this is far more than I even could have imagined what, what it is. It's hard to describe until you've actually been to a Paralympics or an Olympic games. It's just, uh, it's a really a remarkable thing. And, uh, you know, every, every week, every month after that, this sort of new kind of career slash opportunity started to build, uh, through London and and into, into who I am now, I think. You win two gold medals and a silver at the 2012 Paralympic games in London. I got to ask you, uh, compare the feeling of standing up on that medal stage, uh, receiving a gold medal to graduating from the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Well, uh, it's an interesting juxtaposition. I think, you know, for me, graduating the, the, the Academy, it, this feels funny to say because you are a part of the brigade and there's all this ship shipmate self type of stuff, but it felt like an individual accomplishment. Like I wanted to go to the Academy. I wanted to get my degree. I wanted to get my commission. It was a goal that I had had. And it sort of represented the the culmination of my individual track. And yeah, I wanted to get to the fleet, but graduating in the Naval Academy doesn't necessarily feel like you've done anything to serve society. It feels like an individual accomplishment. They call your name and you get this little plaque and whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, keep, uh, winning a gold medal, weirdly, doesn't feel like that. To Not to me. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, the, the, I mean, you're the, in an individual sport. You're really, like, there's no one pushing you or pulling you. Like, you, you swim 100 meters, it's just you doing it. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, and for, for, I guess, all the same reasons, you would think that it's the same, it's the same but somehow it's not. Like, somehow... Yeah, they call your name and yeah, they put a medal on your neck and all that sort of stuff. But I feel like the individual part of that is so small and immediately afterward they play the anthem and the idea of representing your country and knowing that in front of the world and the world is there, 136 different countries or something like that participate in the Paralympic and Olympic Games and they're all there and there's billions of people watching on TV all around the world and you uh, are representing Team USA in front of that whole population. That is that's something big, you right. know. And I, you feel like such a small cog in the in the big, big, big thing that is Team USA, and that is mm-hmm. our way of life and our flag. And I, I, I uh, it, it's it's really hard to describe. I think, and it's just the exact reverse. It's not the culmination of this individual achievement. Um, it's feeling like you're a part, you did well for your community. Mm -hmm. And that's such a cool feeling. Three more gold medals in the Rio Paralympic Games, all in total, a seven-time medalist, five gold, two silver. Which do you sort of appreciate or value hearing more? Is it Bradley Snyder, Navy EOD lieutenant, or Bradley Snyder, 
Paralympic gold medalist? Um, I, I've never been asked that before. I, I, I don't know. I, um, I think that they really go hand in hand. I wouldn't be one without the other. Um, I, I think that, uh, I, I would have to say, I would have to say the, the military service component for this reason, that, that Team USA is a remarkable thing. And uh, Team USA reaches into our community in a way that the military in some ways doesn't. There are always going to be amazing athletes that represent Team USA. There's a whole, right. you know, U- USA Swimming in and of itself has a foundation program of, of millions of kids who all swim during the summer and then swim high school. And, you know, it's not going to be long before we find out who's the next Michael Phelps and all that sort of stuff. So I'm glad that I had my opportunity to sort of be a small chapter in that giant legacy. But they're they're well looked after in, in, in many ways. And I think a lot of anybody from Team USA looking at this, listening to this podcast will be like, whoa, we still need this. We still need that. But I don't think that uh, they're they're looked after and there's going to be another generation and another generation and another generation. Um, I don't think or I worry for the military community in today's society. You know, there's these really heavy questions that are asked about what is the strain on an all volunteer force and what is the feeling for the warriors of our society in America when they represent such a small percentage of the overall population. I'm sure you've said this on the podcast, but less than 1% of the Mm -hmm. population of the United States serves active duty in the military. And you know this as well as I do, a very small percentage of those people, you know, end up downrange and a small percentage of those people end up encountering these major challenges. Uh, When we talk about the people who are afflicted by uh, PTS and, and, and war injuries and, and rationalizing these really crazy things that we ask of our warriors to go down range and kill on our, on our behalf. It's a strange situation and it's a very small group of people. Um, and I think there's a lot of dollars going towards that group of people, but I don't know that there's a lot of, uh, genuine, authentic, uh, appreciation or thought or innovation or, you know, forward thinking on how to look after that group and ensure that they're set up for success. Uh, and so I worry for them. And I think it's important for me to continue to represent them, to call attention to that group of people and to make sure that they're being served the way that they deserve. I'm not surprised by the answer. I mean, you know, to, to non-military folks, um, I, you know, I would, I would expect they would all think it's cooler to be a gold medalist, right? Yeah, because that they can relate to that more. They've seen that more. But I mean, I, I could tell you just personally for me, I mean, I, I've held a lot of quote titles yeah. throughout my life, but you know, army officer still, still ranks at the top. Uh, I don't know that I've found a more fulfilling, rewarding experience uh, in my life. I don't, I don't know that I've accomplished more. I don't know that I've done more. I don't know that I've, I've been able to actually impact and change lives more in any other arena than that. So I'm, I'm not surprised by the answer. Uh, I, yeah. you know, again, if, if it took you a little while to get there, but I kind of felt like that's where you would go. So, yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> I had to think about it. It's tough. It's tough. Uh, and I'll say this too. I mean, to your point about, you know, maybe it, you look at your own sort of set of accomplishments or titles and things like that. And you say, well, what stands out? But then I look at another aspect of it is like who you stand alongside. And again, team USA is a, a, a remarkable group of people, but It's a special person who says that I see a problem and I want to go fix it. 
and I know I might die in the process mm-hmm. and, and that's okay with me. And anybody who's done that, I have immense respect for. And that's what it means to wear the uniform. That, that uniform says, you know, I see a problem and I want to put myself in between that problem and my community. And I know I might die as a result and I'm okay with that. And that is a remarkable commitment to make. And again, something that we shouldn't take lightly, we can't take lightly. And I, I, I don't know that we're adequately living up to our responsibility in that regard as a community serving that group of people. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, it's a story, yours is, that uh, they probably should write a book or a movie about. And, well, it's coincidental that I said that. Obviously, I did my homework. But those things <laughs> have both happened or are in the works, Spoiler right? I mean, where, where, uh, where are we with all this? I know that the movie production, and this was a couple of years ago, you know, I read that it had started. But, uh, you know, the book, the movie, where is everything? Uh, the, the, the book is out. The book's the book, out, yeah. The book is out, and we, um, you know, I started giving speeches. I started telling my story uh, to some extent uh, uh, begrudgingly. I, I kind of thought at the beginning, like, who wants to hear my story? I don't know. I, I, there's a lot of other better stories out there. But um, I started speaking uh, back in 2013, 2014, and uh, I would give my, I would tell my story. I'd answer questions. People would say, "You really ought to write a book. You really ought to write a book. You really ought to write a book." And I was like, "Oh no, nobody wants to hear my book." And then I kind of, I started. And the really, the, the big thing that I, I, I really wanted to do is I, I wanted to set the record straight. I wanted to write everything in there. It's, it's kind of like a, you know, the, the, you know, a lot of people think that the story was overcoming blindness, but I told you earlier, I, I don't think it's, it's quite that simple. And I, I wanted to kind of get to that in, in a way that I couldn't in a keynote. You've given keynotes and, and you only have 20, 20 to 40 minutes to get across your point. And that, that seems like a long time, but it's really not. Um, and I wanted to kind of set the record straight. And so we wrote that book. It came out right before the Paralympics in 2016. It's called Fire in My Eyes. And I'm proud of it. I think it's a great, a great representation of that, t- that, that tale and a lot of the things I learned in that process. It was incredibly cathartic for me to write it forced me to go back into all those memories and really sit in that memory. A lot of them are fun. Like it's fun to talk about what it feels like to ride in a helicopter in Iraq. It's a cool deal. Um, some of them are not so fun. It's not so fun to go back into the hospital and think about what it felt like to be tripping out of my mind on painkillers or to be told that I wouldn't be able to see, but it was really helpful for me to go back into those memories and, and sit and think about it and, and to derive the meaning. So, um, we, it released and, and that came out in, uh, 2016 at the same time, uh, we were kind of working on a, a film project and that has stalled. It's just a tough space. Yep. Um, if you know any film folks who are interested in kicking that project back off, <laughs> no, glad to uh, talk listen, about it, but it's I, a pain in the ass. I haven't said this much on, on the podcast, but uh, a couple of our stories we've, we petitioned for films, um, and we've worked with some great people and. It is a tough, tough, tough road to hoe, and, and uh, I'll say this much. The problem is is that uh, war movies of our generation are the westerns of our parents' and grandparents' generations. There's too many to count, and at right. this point, you know, it, it, this isn't particular to you, Brad, but, you know, sort of every war story has already been told in the eyes of Hollywood. You know, right. the, the idea that it's you overcoming blindness or somebody else overcoming the loss of a leg over somebody else overcoming PTSD. We've all, we've all heard that story. So there's nothing yep. new for Hollywood to get into this whole thing. And unless you find an angel investor who really 
wants this particular movie made and is going to bankroll it and pay the director and the studio and everything else, chances are you're going to be climbing up a very steep mountain. Yeah, it's tough, too. There's a lot of nuance to the story. And to your point about every story has been told, I think the first thing that a writer or a producer looks at when they look at the story is, oh, this is basically American Sniper. Yep, or same this thing. Is basically they see it Platoon. the same thing. Yep. And so they – not only do they try to tell the same story again, but they actually try to mold your story to that arc, and it creates an uncomfortable situation for you because it's like, well, that wasn't my life story. And, and well, now – like. To, to that point about I represent this community, well, they're trying to make me into something I'm not so that they can sell the film, but that's uncomfortable for me. I don't represent myself that way or whatever. Uh, an, an example of this, and we got into this, uh, you know, the, the Navy SEAL pin and term represents a lot of market value. And I ran into this with the book. They really wanted to kind of label me that way. I'm like, I'm not a SEAL. And if it comes out that I'm trying to market myself that way, there are people okay, it, it's disrespectful. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, people are going to eat me alive. Like that's not how I want to represent myself. It's disrespectful to that community. It's not who I am. And Oh, by the way, it's disrespectful to my community. It's stolen to to exactly. And, and, and some, it's scary when you start to do a, a market project like that, because sometimes it gets out of your hands. I don't, I'm not in control of the marketing of certain things at certain times. And I think that that's uh, that's what's unnerving about both uh, the kind of the books and the movies and and especially the way that especially in movies, the way they want to portray you in a script, uh, the, the scripts are they're they're caricatures. You don't have the time in a t 120 minute movie to, to really show the full depth of who a person is. You kind of make them a caricature of themselves. And uh, in the script writing process, I, I was uncomfortable with many of the caricatures of myself. And I was like. This is just not the story that needs to be told, and it's probably better not to tell a story than to tell a crappy version of this. You know what I mean? I agree 100%. It's just one of those things where I feel like part of the reason we do this podcast is to tell stories that nobody's heard, right? To tell all the right. stories that nobody's had a chance to hear because there are thousands of them, and everybody's got right. a story to tell. Uh, whoever took part in, in what we've done over the last 20 years, and even in some of the other you know conflicts that we've uh, we've chronicled here on the Hazard Ground, but you know, again, stories that nobody's ever heard. So that was part of our desire from the outset of doing this whole thing. But when, when right. you try to translate that into movies that people can see and watch and Hollywood could market, it becomes a completely different scenario. All right. As, uh, yeah, exactly. as, as we kind of uh, put, put a bow on this thing here, where are you now? What are you doing? What's day-to-day -day life like? I mean, are you still training? I, I know the 2020 games have all been postponed. You were slated to go right. to Tokyo. What's happening next? So, uh, yeah, I am still training. I made the, sh the shift from swimming into triathlon after the 2016 games. And I started off kind of at the bottom of the rankings and I've worked my way up into, a somewhere in between fifth and ninth, which is where I need to make, make the team for triathlon, which I'm really was set on doing was, I was actually within 24 hours of kicking that season off when, when the world imploded with the virus. So we're in a holding pattern now. Uh, very much intent to try to try to go to the games next year. So we'll see how that pans out. In the meantime, I'm excited to uh, announce that I got married in November. So I, I'm living the living the dream with my my new wife uh, here in Annapolis, Maryland. I teach at the academy uh, part time, and then uh, I've, I've I've really fallen in love with that. So our our new career endeavor is I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to head up to Princeton this fall to try to get a PhD, so I can come back as a full time professor at the Naval Academy. And my goal there is is twofold. One is sort of look after our warrior population. I kind of brought that up earlier where 
I want to ensure that we're asking the hard questions. Are we looking after that group who is tasked with this really uh, incredible task? Um, and then also not only look after our current warriors, but to, to train the next generation, to train sure. the next generation of naval officers, leverage my experiences and and make sure that the the group that we graduate every year is ready for the challenges on the horizon and the tasks we we ask of them. Um, and then also I, 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 I sit on the advisory board for the Navy Special Operations Foundation. So a foundation we kicked off a few years ago uh, to support the EOD and the diver communities. Um, you, you, there's all these, you know this, there's so many little niche communities and, and patch wearers within our community. Um, and we found a gap that uh, I don't think that there was anyone looking after directly the Navy EOD and the diver community. So we set up a foundation to ensure that that need is met not only for our operators, but for their families as well. And we've done some good work in the last couple of years and looking to broaden that out. So that's where we're at. All right. I got to ask you because I'm not the only one thinking it who's listening. Uh, did you know your wife before you had lost your eyesight? No, I hadn't. So yeah, you've never seen her? Question. Never seen her. Yeah. That's I don't awesome. Know what she looks like. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's, I, she's beautiful. Uh, she's an athletic blonde from Brooklyn, New York. Doesn't take shit from no one. And uh, there you go. <laughs> I, I really like that. Yeah. And we were actually set up by a mutual friend. So it was a, we kind of knew from, from date one, uh, we were set up, we, we agreed to go to coffee cause we kind of thought, well, if we don't like each other, we can just walk away. And we ended up having coffee for three hours. Then we went to target to get a few things. And then we went to the grocery store. It was our first date. And it was basically like, I think we knew we would spend the rest of our lives together. So That's awesome. Congratulations. We're off to man. a good start. Thanks. There you go. Uh, not to pry too much kids in the future and all that? Oh, yeah, probably. I, we're, we're, we're excited about this new adventure to go to Princeton. She's from Brooklyn, so to be near, uh, an hour away from family yeah, is going to be a new, yeah. a new opportunity. And then I think we were, you know, we were kind of thinking that after the Paralympic Games would be a good opportunity to start a family. But we're going to kick that until next year and then have that conversation next year. You know what I mean? Well, it is an amazing tale. Uh, obviously, you know, your spirit and, uh, your energy, you, I can just feel it. You know, I, I can hear it in your voice and, uh, you know, the, the things that are ahead of you, uh, obviously weren't planned. You wouldn't have wrote them down this way, uh, when you left the Naval Academy, nor when you arrived in Afghanistan, but, uh, you've made the most of it. And certainly, uh, this continues to be, uh, you know, a, a life that, uh, has, still has a lot of blessings in it there, Brad. For sure. Thank you, sir. And I appreciate you saying that. And I'll, I'll throw out the point, like anybody who's done any level of mission planning knows that you can plan all day long and I guarantee you it's not going to unfold the way you thought it was going to. And, and life's no different. So you just got to learn how to planning's of, co of course important, but you got to learn how to flex. And I'm really grateful that I've been able to do that. And, and I really am in a, in a great spot. I'm very, I, I start every day grateful, just grateful to be here, grateful to be alive, grateful to be with my wife. Um, and I think that's a, that's what you got to do. Despite all the challenges we face, just be grateful. Well, to that end, Brad, again, I salute you. I certainly appreciate your time. Uh, you've been very honest and open with us. And I, I think that's a, you know, a value to our audience and just hearing your story and what you overcome uh, certainly is inspirational to say the least, but certainly above all else, man, thank you for everything you've done. And thank you for being part of the hazard ground. Thank you for your service. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.